Hey, what's going on? Thanks for being here. My name is Nate Huss. I'm one of the pastors here on staff and so glad that you could tune into the Restoration Teaching Podcast. This week, we dive into week two of our Trellis series. Um, And this is just a structure in which we've been working on as a staff and as an elder team to sort out how do we, as the body of Christ, journey together practicing the way of Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those really quick and we are going to dive in together. Here's Landon Myers with week two of Trellis. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter uh, 28. As Jeremy said, we are diving into our second uh, week of a three-week vision series about uh, Restoration Church and uh, how the Lord is directing and leading our uh, ways. And so we'll we'll spend time listening to the words of Jesus in in Matthew chapter 28 here in just a moment. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, prior to that, I was thinking this morning during the, the first service as we were all worshiping about the, the worthiness of the name of Jesus. The, the word church is kind of confusing because it's one of those words that means uh, a lot of different things kind of throughout history at different times. If I say the word church, it might mean something different uh, than when you say the word church. And there's two uh, really significant ways in which I think that's true. There's the 501c3 church. It's a nonprofit organization recognized in the state of Arizona that Restoration Church is. And, and that matters. And we have finances and a building and a lease. And we want to buy a building. And we have a staff and all of that type of stuff. And that matters. That's good. And that's important. But, but then there's the reason that the 501c3 church nonprofit recognized in the state of Arizona exists. And it is for the church family. The, the body of Christ that we are together this morning, a specific part of the body of Christ. There's the church at large, but then there's us, those of you that uh, call Restoration Church your church family. And I want to specify, this vision series is not about the 501c3 or how we want to grow a church or our next 10 steps to whatever it might be. Some of those things matter, but this is about how we want to operate together as a family. Every now and then you have to have a family meeting to go, where are we at and what are we doing and how do we function and what are our values and what's our mission? That's what this is for the church family. And so I think that's important to clarify this morning. Last week, I talked about some of the illusions that Satan, who is the ultimate deceiver, the the Bible expresses that, some of the illusions that he presents to us and our loved ones and, and those in our community. And in a nutshell, his primary illusion is that the way of Jesus is not good. That you can, I guess if you want, go to heaven one day and escape hell, but heaven's not actually that good. It's just this spiritual existence. Or you can have the good life now, enjoy the the pleasures and and pursuits and whatnot, but then not have heaven one day. That the, the way of Jesus is not tangibly impactful today and tomorrow. I talked about how the reason Satan's illusions are often so powerful is because they're rooted in truth. It's funny, I think, as I was speaking last week, right, there's this sense of you all and where there's engagement and where there's not. And when I found or saw the most head nods, it was in the moments talking about the brokenness people have experienced through the church. That's sad. That's real. But it's sad. There's something devastating about what the the church is known as, hypocritical, judgmental, often even abusive. 
and that has to change. Satan's impact, his illusions as deceit are, are real and they're powerful. And there's a, a few specific reasons for that. One of them is that the church has been relegated to the private sector of life. The, the church has also been relegated to this box that we call a building with its walls that we come into one uh, day out of the week. Maybe if you're kind of on that extra spiritual track, you might come in too. Or if you're crazy, you've, you've crossed the bridge from like extra spiritual to just crazy if you do it three times uh, a week. You're here for extra prayer gathering or Bible study or something. And here's our, our spiritual compartment, this box, and we come here for that. But notice it's relegated. It's not interwoven into the everyday stuff of life. The church has become a destination, a religious vending machine of sorts, where you come, depending on the size of the church, and you can pick A7 or B3 or whatever it is, and pick the, the type of spirituality you want to receive from that religious vending machine. And if it's not exactly how you want it, it's not your flavor or size or whatever, you go, oh, I'll just go somewhere else. There's a lot of destinations and religious vending machines to choose from. Churches often become a destination. And the church, if we look numerically, I talked about this last week, it's dying. As generations are growing older and dying, the church as a whole is dying. Not only has it been relegated to this box, but I mentioned it's been relegated to the private specter or sphere of life. There's this term you've probably heard, Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. That, that term actually doesn't exist in the scriptures. While I, I want to clarify, Jesus is indeed my personal Lord and Savior and very possibly your personal Lord and Savior as well. The idea of this individualistic Jesus who becomes mine actually is a modern phenomenon from modern philosophy. If you trace philosophy and worldviews and cultures over the past couple thousands of years, you'll eventually hit the Enlightenment and modernity and postmodernity, and then individualism. And no longer was identity formed in tribes and nations and communities. It was all about the individual. You have your own individual choices, a whole lot of them. We'll talk about that later. But one of those choices, here's where Satan is powerful as a deceiver, is that you can choose Jesus as a truth, as a way, as a life. But the scriptures don't accept that as a possibility. He is the truth and the way and the life. And we can't stop there. He is the good way and the wholesome, beautiful truth and the good life. But the church is known for certain things. And so we as a, a church leadership come to you this morning with a, a proposal of sorts, an opportunity of sorts that I, I talked about last week of this trellis we want to uh, put before you. It's six rhythms, values, ways of life that we want uh, to give you the opportunity to commit to alongside of us that we believe can make an impact. Is it going to solve everything? No. Is it perfect? No. Will it be messy? Absolutely. That's just kind of how we function as a church family. But I wholeheartedly believe it'll be worthy. It will honor the name of Jesus. And it most of all will allow him to do the work of transforming our lives together. I think any vision series should come straight from the, the mouth and the mind of Jesus. So let's, let's look at uh, what he has to say in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. We read this. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. There's actually a whole lot packed into this single verse, but without a doubt, the most important, most important word in that verse is directed. 
There's this group of 11 people, 11 disciples, which we'll define here in just a moment. Together, they went, which requires that they listened to where Jesus directed them. For us, too, as we adopt this vision from the the mouth and the mind of Jesus, the number one thing we have to do, the very first thing out of the gate, is become good listeners. Far too often, we and I and the church world have made the mistake that we want to set an incredible, exciting, creative, new, and fresh vision. We want to have something that's attractive and invigorating. We want to be great leaders. But what all of that has to start with is being really great listeners. What every one of us are called to is becoming really good followers. It's not necessarily a whole lot of books when you walk through the the self Help section, I guess we don't walk through bookstores anymore, but scan through Amazon or whatever you do if you read books um, on being good followers. But our vision has to start with assessing and listening, where is Jesus directing? The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. Why is uh, Jesus worthy, as we sang, of listening to, of following in every moment? The, the next verse clarifies that for us. In verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted, which is our, our case as well. Verse 18, then Jesus came near. Side note, that's such good news. When we embrace and listen to what Jesus is directing, where we show up when he says for us to show up and where he says for us to show up and how he says for us to show up, he will meet us there. And wherever Jesus is, it will be good. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Then Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This is why Jesus is trustworthy. On the cross, as he gave up his life and his blood and the oxygen in his lungs, and he breathed his last, and as Jeremy said, he cried out, it is finished. He was conquering death and sin, our sin and Satan. He became victorious. He was demonstrating for our sake. He didn't need to know this, but for our sake that there was nothing and is nothing that can hold the person and the name of Jesus down. He's actually worthy because all authority in heaven and on earth, that spans everything, the emotional, the relational, the physical, the communal, all parts of life, he has authority over All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then we get to this this word in verse 19, go. It's one of the uh, most, I think, misinterpreted and misunderstood words in the scripture because often what happens is we translate it, leave. Especially if you grew up in the church, this was often used as, as kind of a call for missions work. Maybe you had this vision or a call or a pressure like, we need to go on a trip to China to express the gospel. And that's certainly a reality. God does, at times, call specific people to specific places. That happens. But that is not what the call and the command is here. The, the verb in its original language is an active verb. It means in your going not leave to somewhere new. It's not about a destination. But while you're journeying, while you're walking, while you're on the hike and the ride, in your going to work, and while you're working, in your going as a parent or a child, as a a husband or a wife, in your going while you're driving down streets and sharing those roads and intersections, and you're going in your places where you uh, partake in hobbies, your banks, your grocery stores, in your going in all of the everyday stuff of life, 
That's where Jesus calls us. He says, go, therefore, means because I have all authority in heaven and on earth, I am trustworthy in every moment, go, therefore, and make disciples. Now, make disciples is interesting. We talk a whole lot about discipleship in churches. And I've always found this to be kind of interesting and even counterintuitive that a church, right, the 501c3 program, will have a program for discipleship. Because I don't, I don't see Rube for anything but discipleship. The whole thing is discipleship. There's just following Jesus, period. Now, there's certain things that we do under that umbrella, but to have something called discipleship, here's where you get discipled, and then other things, that actually doesn't make much sense to me. And what's often funny as well is we talk a whole lot about discipleship. And if you actually were to walk into a Christian bookstore, if those still exist, there'd be a whole section under the, the, the title discipleship. But we often don't define it. And what's beautiful about the Great Commission here is that Jesus defines it. And so I think that's a worthy definition of listening to. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples. Now he tells us what a disciple is. First off, he says, of all nations. In that sense, it wasn't, again, leave to another country. What he's saying is, for the first time, this is no longer just for the Jewish people. This is for all people, all, skins, all skin colors, all genders, all ethnicities, ethnicities, all cultural backgrounds and histories, socioeconomic demographics, everything, backgrounds, stories, all nations, all people, the diversity there. That's who is the pool for disciples. And then he gives two categories. There's, there's two parts to being a disciple and to discipling others in the name of Jesus. One is to be baptized, and the other is to teach them to observe, or depending on the translation, obey all that Jesus has commanded. It's actually really simple. His definition for discipleship, be baptized and baptized, and be taught and teach to observe all that Jesus has commanded. Let's break those two down, though, briefly. Baptism is this beautiful symbolism. We, we did it a, a month or so ago, and it was an incredible opportunity to, to get to baptize a, a bunch of people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then we put them into the water, and there's the symbolism of the, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and into the death, and then out of it, into life, all in the name of Jesus. And it's good, and that's part of what it is. But as it's being described here in the scriptures, it's so much more than water. The water is this symbolism of being, and this word kind of sounds a little bit absurd, but drowned in, fully covered by, engulfed in, blanketed, wrapped around in the person that God is as Father, Son, and Spirit. There's this intimate knowledge that you can't escape, you can't run from, you can't hide from, in the best sense. Wherever you go, Jesus is there. Wherever someone might be lurking or Satan is deceiving, the Spirit is there, the Father is loving. The, the first step in discipleship is a knowledge, not information to take a test, but a deep, intimate, relational knowledge of the beautiful, good, just, faithful, gracious, merciful, forgiving, providing, protecting God that Yahweh God is as Father, Son, and Spirit. From there, Jesus continues, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. I'm not sure how familiar you are with this book called the Bible and the scriptures, but it's kind of long. Like, he has a whole lot to teach and to command and to convey. And so if we go, hey, discipleship's being baptized, okay, cool, I'll get to know Jesus. But now I have to be taught all, that's a big word, 
that he has commanded. How do we handle that? Maybe if you grew up in the church, all of a sudden there's these kind of red blinking lights somewhere deep in your soul going, hold on, let's press the brakes. It sounds like it's getting very legalistic quickly. And that's a fair uh, assumption and concern. But I think often what happens is legalism is just good law, good design, good intent from God gone bad in our understanding. If I'm driving on the street and I come up to a red light, it's my job to observe the law and recognize that that means I should stop. Actually, I have to stop for very good reason. Because if I don't and I just plow through, there's a really good probability that I'm going to hurt or even kill somebody. The law hinders me in that moment. I'm not allowed to cross until it goes green but it produces all kind of good. In fact, that system as a whole, though in that moment I'm probably angry because I'm always late and I'm like, I'm late, I can't afford a red light right now, it is actually allowing me to go faster because if there wasn't this system with lanes and colors and blinkers and brakes and red, yellow, and green lights and stop signs, do you know how much longer it would take us to get everywhere? A whole lot longer. We'd have all kinds of disasters and chaos. But the system allows me to say to a friend, hey, why don't you come over for dinner at 6 p.m., at 4 p.m., and I have time to go to the grocery store, buy groceries, drive back, and then they can drive to my house, and when we're done, drive back, because a system with rules and regulations has been created that actually removes chaos, creates order, and provides beautiful, good opportunities. Law in and of itself is not bad. The... uh, The book in the Bible, Leviticus, gets this really bad rap as boring, which sometimes it kind of is, and as just a bunch of rules. And people actually look at those rules and go, why would would a good God create all of these rules as this test to see if his people would follow? And there's so many, and then this God gets angry. Why would I actually want anything to do with this God? And actually, that concept of all of God's rules is a significant reason, because Satan's good at deceiving that people walk away from the church. Who would want this God with all these rules that don't even make sense? What we often don't realize, though, is when Leviticus was written, God had provided a promised land for his people. They had been in slavery for over 400 years. All they knew, their way of life, was Egypt's way of life. And then they were entering, and the surrounding nations often sacrificed their own children during times of droughts and famines because they didn't know what their gods wanted. And so in an unknown kind of guesswork attempt to appease the gods so that it would rain and there would be a harvest so that they could feed their other children, they would sacrifice one of their children, maybe burn them in hopes that that would appease the god because they're offering something valuable in hopes that they could save their other children. But here comes Yahweh God with a long list, the whole book called Leviticus of laws, some about diets and what is safe to eat, some about how to handle marriages and divorce, about how to interact with your neighbors, what to do if there's a lawsuit because there's an accident, all kinds of things. He provides all of this so that there's crystal clear clarity on what to do, and no one would guess and sacrifice their children. In fact, he says, do not do that. And all of a sudden, there's a different perspective. This isn't an angry God testing people. He's actually protecting them and creating beauty and order out of chaos. We can look at Jesus' words here and go observe all that I have commanded and think that's legalistic. Or we can look at it and go, but Jesus is trustworthy because he is the authority of all heaven and earth. We uh, talk often about becoming human the way that we were made to be. 
Jesus is the authority of what parenting looks like and what being a kid looks like. He's the authority of truth. There's a right way and a wrong way to be human, to interact, to handle our resources, to love, to be a neighbor, to be an employee, an employer, all of these things. There's an actual good way. It's the way of Jesus. And anything less than that, anything outside of his design isn't good. We read uh, Psalm 1 last week. I want to read that once again. It says this. I'm not going to go into all the detail we did last week, but I think it's, it's worth coming back to. Uh, Psalm 1, verse 1, how happy, like a deep type of happiness, how happy is the man who does not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path of sinners, which often is very appealing and can make sense because Satan's good at what he does, or join a group of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction. He actually delights in it. He doesn't just endure the Lord's instruction because then he gets to heaven. No, he recognizes that he's the authority of all heaven and earth, and so he understands best that the way of Jesus, the way of Yahweh God, his instruction, actually brings delight. The, the best marriages and parenting and businesses and neighborhoods and buildings and art and cultivation happens under the umbrella of the way of Jesus because he designed it, and he meditates on it. It's a lot like the word observes, day and night. And the everyday stuff of life, the person following God figures out how to be human the way the designer has designed us to be. He is like a tree planted beside streams of water. We talked last week how these streams were designed and then dug out to bring water so that when a tree was planted there, it would be nourished. And when a tree is nourished properly, it will grow and be healthy, which leads to the next verse. That tree will bear its fruit in season. It will be healthy. And not only that, but its leaf will not wither. When the storms and the brokenness and the famines and the droughts happen, that tree will be able to endure because it's living into the design. It will always have water because God said, here's water, plant there. Way too often, far too often in our humanity, because we've embraced the relegation of the church and Jesus to the private sphere of life, we go in our spiritual lives, Jesus has authority but not in our marriages, not in our businesses, not with our finances, not with how we neighbor, not with how we're hospitable, not with everything. Jesus is an extra part we fit into our schedule instead of this shift where he becomes the foundation upon we build everything around. Those are two very different perspectives. He's like a tree planted beside streams of water that bears its fruit in season because this is what worship is, right? Recognizing that he is the designer and we are the designed, that he is the creator and we are the creation, that he is the maker and we are the made. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not survive the judgment and sinners will not be in the community of the righteous. For the Lord watches and knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. This whole discipleship concept really is a lot like driving. When you're 15, I think the age has changed a little bit now. I think maybe it's right when you're 15. You are uh, eligible to get your learner's permit. But before you do that, you have to take a test to prove and demonstrate that you have uh, a decent enough knowledge of the laws so that you don't run red lights. Once you've gained some of that information and shown that you have that knowledge, you are then given a learner's permit, which means that with a specified type of person that also has a driver's license and is of a, a specific age, 
You can learn to drive. You can be an apprentice understanding the way of the roads. And then once you've done that, you'll take a test to demonstrate the marriage of the information and the actual, right? Just knowing theoretically how to drive is not enough. You actually want to get on the road and go places and do things in your going. What's interesting about Christianity, though, is so often we get stuck just with the information. We take the test, and we know stuff about Jesus, and we know stuff about his laws, and we know stuff that we've learned in circles, that we come to a building that's a destination that we call the church, and we go, this is good. But we don't actually get out there and drive, which actually might indicate maybe we don't believe the way of Jesus is actually good in the everyday stuff of life. But if we come back to verse 16, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came near and said to them, I am the authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, because I'm the authority in your going, everywhere you go, as you're going in the everyday stuff of life, make disciples who are baptized and know Father, Son, and Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I like this definition of uh, what it means to observe. It's to notice or perceive something and register it as being significant. If I come up to a red light, I notice it, I perceive it, and I register it significant, so I stop. When it comes to Jesus, it's similar, but we notice or, per- or perceive his teaching, his instruction, and we register it not just as being significant, but as being trustworthy in every facet of our humanity. That's what it means to observe his instruction and put it into practice in the everyday stuff of our lives, in our going, wherever it is that we are going. Teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you and remember I am with you always to the very end of the age. This leads us to our trellis. I defined a a trellis last week in, in this way. A trellis is simply a structure designed to lead, catalyze, and support the healthy growth of a vine. I'm uh, at a place where I believe we as a church family need something similar, a trellis to promote healthy growth, to protect, to give direction and guidance. Now, there's a whole lot Jesus has commanded. Our trellis only has six things. There's six core things. There's six really significant things. They're not the only six things. We could have went with five, but we felt like these six really mattered. It was very easy to find seven and nine and ten, but we wanted it to be something that no matter where you're at, if you're just beginning your journey following Jesus, or you've been following Jesus for decades, you can grab a hold of these six rhythms and values and ways of life, and they will impact you today and tomorrow and the next day. They're not perfect, they're not comprehensive to the way of Jesus, but I do believe they're a great starting place for everybody. One more little disclaimer first is that we live in a world, we live in a moment where there's choice overload. You have a million choices of what school to go to, what clothes to buy, even if Jeremy and I almost wear the same clothes. Uh, All kinds of choices constantly. It's actually overwhelming. There's, there's studies showing how debilitating all of the choices are for our physical health, mental health, 
Uh, one in particular out of this book called The Burnout Society. I've referenced a study that Harvard did. It's, it's pretty impactful how debilitated we are, the impact by this choice overload and choice paralysis. And it really impacts my wife really negatively. She's an incredibly beautiful, wonderful, talented, gifted woman capable of all kinds of things. She is not capable, though, of ordering at a restaurant very effectively. It's, it's really bad, quick. At Chipotle, she can handle it. Like, black beans or brown beans, she can make that choice. Even white rice, brown rice, she can handle that. She can even pick a protein or go a bowl, burrito, salad. She's good to go at Chipotle. It's a safe place for her to order and look at a menu. Now, if we go to the Cheesecake Factory, it's a disaster. Have you, have you been there? There's like 35 pages, literally, on the menu. And it takes her about a minute to read each page. And so 35 minutes later, the, the waiter or waitress comes back for like the third time, goes, are you ready to eat? And I'm like, babe, we probably should order now. There's people waiting. And she does the same thing. I kid you not, not like once or twice or five times or 10 times. You can ask her mom. She's nodding with me or her sisters. Here's what she does. She panics. She does this weird self-sabotage thing. You see her kind of like freak out a little bit and goes, I'll have the fish and chips. She hates fish and chips. But every time she orders fish and chips, and I'm looking at her like, what are you doing? This makes no sense. But, but I think... We need something a little bit more like Chipotle and a little bit less like the Cheesecake Factory. We need something that all of us, in a unified, powerful way, can grab a hold of. Because while it's good to be here as a collection of individuals that happen to sit next to each other, that's very different than the power of a community in motion as one body and one family. And for far too long, Satan has been effective at turning the church into and relegating the church into a place that's just a destination. And beautiful good things happen in this destination, don't get me wrong, but the name of Jesus is too worthy to be stuck in a destination. The name of Jesus is too worthy to be stuck in the private specter of individual lives. It needs to grow and promote and create a vine that's so beautiful people see it and go, oh, I always just thought the church was judgmental and hypocritical and a little boring, but it's different than that. There's beauty. Look at how it's growing. So, I hope I have one other disclaimer that matters. I forgot, and this one's key. These six things have no saving power. <laughs> These six things cannot heal you. They, in and of themselves, actually will not help you. Uh, without Jesus, they'll probably be harmful in some ways. Like, they're, they're costly. Uh, they cannot transform you, heal, restore, anything like that. Only Jesus can. Uh, as I think about it, it's like a ship in sails and wind. Uh, if you put sails up, they're totally worthless in and of themselves. They have no value. They can't move the ship. They can't give it direction. They can't do anything for the ship. Maybe they'll provide a tiny bit of shade. That's it. Unless the wind comes and is caught in the sails and that moves the ship. These things, these six values and rhythms are like sails, worthless in and of themselves. But Jesus promises if we put those sails up, he will come near he will move, and he will transform. But what we have to be cautious of is not moving into that legalism, not replacing the creation with the creator, and going, these are just six things he says, he promises, he'll work transformatively and beautifully in, but we have to be cautious. There's risks in anything you do. As we approach a new core and a way that we're gonna follow Jesus together, there's risks, no matter what you choose. One of the risks here is that we could get legalistic with it, so we gotta hold each other accountable to not doing that. With that said, here's the six 
I'm going to just read the six off in order uh, fairly quickly, and then I'll explain them a little bit more in depth, because the face value of each of the six, uh, there's a deeper why behind each of them. Number one, practice hospitality by spending time having someone over for a meal once a week. My wife is probably freaking out at this one because she's highly introverted. Number two, practice generosity by giving 10%, not necessarily to Restoration Church. If you're not scared yet. Number three, practice vulnerability and repentance by confessing audibly to someone once a week. Number four, uh, practice prayer by praying with someone else once a week. Number five, practice Sabbath by committing to embrace a 24-hour Sabbath once a week. And number six, practice cultivating by contributing and collaborating with a non-church-related community, organization, or endeavor. Now, these are not comprehensive to the way of Jesus, but they're six things that if you study the scriptures from cover to cover, you will find these repeated again and again and again. They're foundational to the character of our God and therefore to the way of Jesus. As brief as I can, I want to kind of explain in a little bit more depth why each matters. When we say practicing hospitality, this is not a way to feed people that need food. This is not, we're going to hand out 52 meals a year. This is about relationships. We've often said the argument can be made that Jesus was crucified for the meals that he shared with people because he shared meals with all kinds of people, people on that day's left and right, all kinds of religious spectrums, different ethnicities. It was diverse. It was all nations. And there's something vulnerable but really healthy that happens in a meal because two humans or more sit across from each other at a table and they both consume something that they need to survive. When we eat, we're doing something that we cannot live without. And there's this humbling that, that happens in that moment that breaks down walls and barriers and differences. We see Jesus model this. And so the goal is, the hope is that we'll have people that share meals with other people that are in our church and you'll get to know each other. You'll be able to journey together as a result of that. You'll share meals with people from other churches. That's good. You'll share meals with non-believers with friends, maybe with enemies, with different political uh, people with different political ideologies and concepts and ideas. But there's something significant and loving that happens when we listen to another human being sitting across the table. Is that going to save our lives? No. But will it begin to work and cause questions to be asked and the Spirit to lead in our lives? I wholeheartedly believe so. Uh, second one, uh, practice generosity by giving 10%. Uh, 10% is an interesting number. The, the scriptures talk a lot about a tithe. Here's why I believe, I'm not saying it's biblical, but here's why I believe a tithe is the number. Because no matter how much you make, no, how, no matter how much you have, if you give 10% to anything anywhere, you get rid of 10%, you lose 10%, you will feel it. If you only make a dollar and you give 10%, you feel that. If you make a million dollars and you give 10%, you will feel that, and it's supposed to be that way. What we believe, what the scriptures say, a uh, heart of generosity does is it shifts trust and control from ourselves to Jesus. I'm saying, Jesus, I trust you with my life to be in control. And one of the ways that we put that into practice is by not trusting the credit card or the bank account or the 401k, because if we're honest, we can have a whole lot of control with our finances, but this practice goes, Jesus, you're a better judge of where to go and what to do and how to spend and how to live my life than I am. So I'm going to practice trusting you. 
Two other things I need to clarify with this. When I put not necessarily to Restoration Church, I'm not saying that's a bad idea. I wholeheartedly believe giving to Restoration Church is worthy. We work hard for it to be that way as a family. However, if you're at a place where you go, oh, that feels manipulative. I don't know if I can trust it. Then hear me on this. Do not give to Restoration Church but still embrace this. Find somewhere else to give. We can give you plenty of ideas and partners that we wouldn't have a dime or we wouldn't get a dime from. But the practice of this generosity does something to our hearts that's meaningful. Number three, uh, practicing vulnerability and repentance. If I had to pick one, this is the one I'm assuming a lot of people might get a, a little frightened by, by confessing audibly to someone else once a week. This is incredibly healthy. The, the way of Jesus, the fact that we're all here together, what we have in unity this morning is that we're all, well, unless there's a good chance someone maybe just dragged you in here, then you don't fall into this category. But if you came here on your own volition, it's because we all know we're messed up and we need help. And so we look to Jesus to do that. Yet, though the church building, right, as we gather, should be one of the places people feel, if not the place, that people feel the most comfortable in their own skin with their own issues and stories and everything, it's often one of the least, right? That's not okay. That doesn't work. That doesn't look like the gospel. The gospel's the opposite. We are not perfect, but we know the one who is. We're not even at a place where we have a clue how to become perfect, but we know the one that will transform our lives from broken to beautiful. So when we practice frequently repentance, we're freeing ourselves and others to look to Jesus to change our lives instead of pretending we have it all together. And I guarantee that will be a very refreshing, refreshing reality to a world filled with fake, filled with posturing. Number four, Practicing prayer by praying with someone else once a week. Simply put, prayer is dependence, and we need to practice being dependent on Jesus and not ourselves. Number five, practicing Sabbath by committing to embrace a 24-hour Sabbath once a week. There's a whole lot here. We did a, a whole six-week series and practice on this. We'll be offering another Sabbath practice to guide people on how to do it because it's pretty foreign um, in a couple months. But if I think about families especially, this applies to individuals and anybody, I can't think of a better tool for families than to embrace a 24-hour Sabbath. Our culture is filled with people constantly wanting more, having a whole lot to worry about, and then working endlessly to deal with their worries or their wants. And what Jesus has described with Sabbath isn't a legalistic day to test us to see if we cannot do anything. It's not a boring day. Actually, it's delightful. It's my favorite day of the week. The best food and drinks and parties and people. It's just glorious. But it's a day to not work, worry, or want in the midst of a culture killing ourselves literally with this chaos. It's refreshing when people look and go, oh, wow, they're not exhausted constantly. I can guarantee like half the people that answered the question in the lobby this morning, how are you, said I'm busy. It's just what we do. We're not meant to be machines that have been run ragged. We're humans. And Jesus is the authority on human the way we were made to be. And from cover to cover, he commands this. He says, do it. Not as a test, but because it's good. Lastly, uh, practice cultivating by contributing to a non-church-related community organization or endeavor. The, the first command in the scriptures has nothing to do with salvation or evangelism. It has to do with cultivating, making the world a better place. The church is often not known for that. We're known for looking inward, not outward. And so we need to get into the midst of our community, sure, globally as well, for sure. But what I'm talking about is our local community and make it better. 
cultivate, participate, not to make our building or our programs or our stuff better, make the, the city and the greater Prescott area as a whole better. That's a command in the scriptures that I think we often neglect because we've accepted the relegation of Jesus and the church to the private sphere of life and to this building that's become a destination. And in that way, Satan has caused the church to lose a lot of power that Jesus wants us to have. Not power to be abusive, not unhealthy authority, power to put his name and his love and his story and his way that is indeed good. The way, the truth, and the life. Not a way and a truth and a life. The good way, the only truth, the good life on display for others to see. In a... About a month, we're still working on the, the date and location. We're going to host a dinner. It'll be a, a celebration. There'll be a, a ceremony and a commitment for those of you that want to join with us to make this commitment. Some of you are already doing all of these things. Some of you are doing some of them. Some of you are doing none of them. It doesn't matter. We want to provide this as an opportunity, not as a closed door where if you don't do this, you're not a part of us, but as an open door. If you want to take Jesus more seriously, here's a way we intend, we believe we are being directed by him to offer and that we as a staff and elders want to embrace together. In that process, we're going to provide six guides that will uh, kind of display best practices, how this might look in your specific stage of life. If you're an empty nester or single or have a lot of little kids like me, like it's very different. There's a lot of flexibility and creativity to make this your own. And we're going to uh, provide steps along the way of what it can look like. On the financial part, we have uh, financial coaches that if you want, will walk uh, with you through this. You might be at a place where you go, there's no way I can do that. We want to come, come alongside and help. Um, in terms of community organizations and endeavors, we have a team ready that is forming and has formed partnerships with non-church-related organizations in the city. So if you don't know where to serve, if you don't know what your interests are or, you're giving, or what you would like to, to participate in, we have connections. Um, we want to just help you make Prescott better, not just restoration better. For each of these six, we would just want to assist and come alongside of you to help this trellis promote healthy growth for you as an individual, for your family, if you have one, and for us as a church family. The other thing that we'll be providing that night as we uh, embrace this together is this kind of mapping your own trellis kit. And so we're going to make it really simple. It's not easy, but it'll, it'll be a guide that you can just fill in the blanks. You can edit as you go throughout the year. It'll be a one-year commitment. We want to commit for one year. We'll have an end date, and we want to see what Jesus does with this. Uh, I want to clarify, like I just said, it's not for everyone. You may not be at a place where this is the moment to do this. At the same time, it is for everyone. I can't think of anyone that this wouldn't benefit. But you have to decide what the, the Spirit is uh, calling you towards. We are... Uh, had a consultant come and spend some time with our staff this week. And uh, we did these drawings. And I want to spend just a, a brief moment showing them to you. Um, one of the things that the consultant asked us to do, it was the, the four of us, so myself, Ron, Nate, and Jeremy, uh, is to draw like a, a quadrant with four sections. And in one of the sections, draw your life in fourth grade, and one of the sections to draw uh, your family, like personal family unit, when it's at a 10, at its best, at an A. The next uh, bottom, I guess, right, no, left from your side would be uh, your favorite part or what you think is just good about Restoration Church now. And then the last is where you see Restoration Church in uh, five years. And so I just want to briefly talk about this because I think it just kind of 
connects the dots. So he didn't let us talk about this. We did this all individually, but you start to see some themes here that I think are interesting. This one's by far the best. I'll come to it later. I drew it. Jeremy. All right. Um, we learned that none of us are very good at art, and we should probably go back to kindergarten. It was amazing. Uh, so in fourth grade, I was in Montana with my family. My parents both grew up there. And it was a really cool season where I got to be exposed to the outdoors. And so my dad and I, we got to spend a lot of time hunting and fishing and just being in the woods together. And that was very uh, formative for me. Um, these two little triangles, they're, they're teepees. And you can see that, right? But there were two families in our church that they lived in teepees full time. And it was fun to go visit them. They were like, like hardcore, like... I call them like mountain men, and they wore like leathers and all like they had the fringe and all the cool things. And it was fun to just go be a part of their life and just see the simplicity and how they lived. And it's just something that I, oh, I've carried with me. Um, and then for me, like fourth grade was still around sports. I love playing sports and basketball and baseball um, were kind of my jam as well, just being outside and learning how to shoot and hunt and do all the, the cool things with my dad. Uh, for my family, for me, when we're at a tent, it's when all seven of us are, are sharing a meal together, when we're around our, our uh, dining table. We have two adult kids that are out of the house, and so when they come home, it's just, that's, it's good. And I really love those, um, those moments for our family. Uh, we get to laugh, we get to cry, we get to actually communicate and see each other face-to-face and eye-to-eye, and that's becoming, unfortunately, more and more of a rare occurrence in our house. Um, as far as Restoration Church goes, one of the things, or there's actually two things that kind of work together about what I love most. Um, these are people having awesome conversations. You got that by the drawing, as you can, you can tell by your reactions. I knew instantly what you was knew, happening. Yeah, you're like, yeah, I got yeah. this. This is, yeah. But at, on any given time where we're gathered, there's always meaningful conversation taking place, and there's emotions being shared back and forth on Sundays, on different uh, seasons when life and practice groups and different things. And I just love that. It's an authentic uh, real group of people that we get to do life together. And part of that is oftentimes we share a meal together, whether that's in a practice group or just random times where like social Sunday or otherwise, just the stories I get to hear of how much life goes on amongst each other is, is pretty um, impactful to me. And so taking that down the road five years, Man, it's just growing that in, in more and more depth. As we see, like, each of these little pods represent communities, whether it's in the north, the south, the east, or the west, but restoration is everywhere. Um, and maybe that's a gathering places or just doing life together. Maybe it's sharing meals or whatever that looks like down the road is. We are heavily um, surrounding this community, if you will, but we all have one common vision and common goal of being a unified body. So that's my stellar artwork. I'm going to go work on being a better Bob Ross or something. Happy trees. Happy trees. There's, you got happy triangles, bro. All right, Nate. Yeah. The We're going to vote after on who's the best. Luke, who, who's, who came and helped us, points at Ron and I and said, I bet you guys are going to be the best. And as you can tell, I definitely won in not being the best. That was kind of insulting Try. for us, Albright. It was kind of, yeah. Like, he just made these assumptions, like, because I play guitar, I can that, That's because we're the, we're the best to dress, see, so that's how that works. Yeah. So, um... Today. <laughs> so this is fourth grade, and as you can tell, it's really clear, fourth grade was great. Um, no, um, fourth grade was a unique year for me, um... 
I went to, uh, I grew up in, in a, a pretty strict um, Christian school, and uh, there were just some things that were happening culturally, both there and at home, that I was battling with, and so I begged my parents if I could homeschool, and uh, they had converted a, a garage into a bedroom. There was eight of us, eight kids, excuse me, so 10 of us, in a 1,200-square-foot home. That worked great. And so uh, they had built this little closet right behind that garage. So this is me by myself in fourth grade, homeschooling. Um, and uh, yeah, a really contentious season for me. Um, I really like, um, this was a time frame when I really started to identify some really big things that were going on in our household with um, uh, um, substance abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse. There was a lot that was happening and I was having to navigate. And I spent a lot of time hiding in that season. Um, but that was a year that um, I convinced my parents to allow me to purchase a trumpet, as you can see up here. And uh, I dove wholeheartedly into music at that time. And um, what's wonderful about that is that trumpet ended up ended up being the seed money. I sold it when I was a freshman to buy the guitar that I was playing today. And that has been on a bunch of continents and a bunch of countries and stuff, and what a gift. Um, I went to a Christian school, like I mentioned. Uh, it was called Grace, and uh, it was kind of the opposite of that. And so it was a very contentious season. And uh, one of the reasons why I get crazy and worship so wild on Sundays is because I'm overwhelmed by how awesome Jesus is and not how awesome they presented him to be. And um, so I'm overwhelmed by his goodness. That's why I get crazy, because um, I do not deserve his love. Um, this is the family out of 10. And uh, I, drove, drove, I drew a really good beach and ocean, as you can tell. <laughs> And, uh, but no, just every year we go to Oceanside. But one of the things I just love, yesterday we went hiking through the Dells and I do really value um, when we just get time to be together and we go on these little adventures, whether it's to California or out hiking and doing crazy stuff. So that's us as a 10. Um, what I love about Restoration Church, the theme that we all put was meals, but I'm blown away by, um, I'm, I'm blown away by you guys, to be honest. Um, I get the opportunity to share a lot of meals throughout the week. And um, something that just moves me and impacts me so deeply is the men and women that God has brought. And this table specifically represents um, elders and staff. We get together and do this thing called Teaching Collective where we dive through the Word of God and process and just challenge each other. It's really cool. And it's unbelievable in my Almost 20 years of being in ministry, I've just never been at the table with such authenticity and compassion and passion for Jesus. Um, it's pretty convicting and challenging, but in the best of ways. And then I drew this, this fire pit, which is horrible. And I don't even know if we've ever done one there, but for some reason, that's what I drew. But I was thinking of the garbits who are sitting over here. They throw the best parties. And sometimes, you know, we, last week, Landon said, like, when you put Christian before something, it's, like, horrible. So, like, you go, Christian music, and they're like, ah, second best. Like, Christian clothes, like, ah, second best, you know. Christian restaurant, Christian coffee house. But they throw the best Christian parties ever, and uh, they are just really good. They're full of life with good drinks and good food and good conversation. Um, so I really value what's happening just in this community with relationships. And then these triangles... Um, just represent uh, different communities 
that are a part of a whole. Um, there's something that's really impactful. There's a lot of unbelievable leaders in this room. Um, some of you don't even realize that you're leaders, but you are. And um, the beautiful thing about being a part of a community like this is that uh, in order for leaders to have the opportunity, you have to have a place or a space to release them into. And I see in the next five years, God continuing, and especially as we embrace this trellis piece, God is going to unload and unlock so much in some of you as leaders' lives. And I see um, restoration in a really healthy way beginning to multiply, but still having the overarching unity of who God has called us to be as, as a body of Christ together. So, Perfect. Thank you. Uh, Ron's not here, so I'm not going to share his. Although uh, I will say this, the reason that this consultant had us share fourth grade is because uh, as people have kind of just studied psychology, sociology, fourth grade is one of the most, if not the most, impactful uh, years of a child's life. And chances are uh, the things that were the hardest then might be the hardest now. The things that you were best at or really enjoyed then are maybe a part of your life now. So it's a really formative, important year. Uh, and what was interesting in each of our stories is that fourth grade was different. There was a lot of broken to the point of like pretty overwhelming that day. And there was also a lot of beautiful. And the reason that I wanted to, to share this is because what this vision is has to start here. It's a collection of individuals, each with your own story, brokenness, beauty, but recognizing that we need Jesus. And when those stories come together, uh, there's, there's significant power. So for the sake of time, I'm going to skip mine. Fourth grade was good. Hockey, family, dinner, great. This is uh, my, my family, my parents' house specifically. And it's kind of like everybody loves Raymond. I live across the street from them, but it's really good. And so we have like tons of kids, me and my sister. So we basically have like a whole soccer team. So we have soccer matches and the, the grass there. And then there's people entering the door. Some of them are happy. Some of them are crying. Some of them are overwhelmed. That's what it was like growing up. Like it was never a question of if someone else was there. It was like, who was there? Do they live here now? How long will they be here? But it was good. That's just what it was and how my family lived. And I, I learned a lot through that. There's a TV and a sports game on because that makes me happy. And my mom's delicious food. It's excellent. Uh, this is me being an architect and some very formal official blueprints of the uh, Bautista household. Here, if you know them, they're a part of our church. I do their little uh, kitchen, refrigerator. There's some drinks and food. Right here is an S with a box. Robert likes to, to smoke all kinds of meat. And uh, then you walk through the door, also a TV, because there's a game on. They really uh, let me watch sports. There's uh, happy faces and sad faces and crying faces and all kinds of faces. And that's a, a really intentional part, because I've been there over the years many times where there are people laughing and celebrating. And I've been there many times where there's people crying and mourning and praying together. And really, whether they're crying or mourning or laughing or celebrating, somehow I'm always here with the drinks and the food, and I'm not really doing anything. But someone else is praying with and shepherding and loving and quote unquote pastoring, if you will. And so that's an intentional part of this, because it's beautiful. This vision is not me doing anything significant or our elders or our staff. It's the people that make up a family called Restoration Church, following him and the everyday stuff of life and impacting lives in our going. The uh, last piece is more beautiful artwork. Um, different compartments of life, this is this multiplied. So I imagine there's some of you sitting here going, oh, I, I wish I had that here and I've not been on that couch. 
or I don't have the garbage home. I believe you can and will and should, and that takes time, but what we're creating with our social Sunday, with our practices, with the dinners, with this 52 opportunities to share a meal a week, I believe you can and will find this. Now, you'll have to step into it. It won't just be easy. You're not going to just love everybody always. It doesn't work that way, but I hope to have that exponentially grow because we need that following Jesus together in the everyday stuff of life. This is a school and being impactful in the the school system, the market, business, industry. This is a soccer field and helping out with whatever needs that organizations in town have. This is all kinds of meals and parties, and this is a neighborhood, and this little fingerprint in each one is the small little imprint of, of Restoration Church in all of these different areas of life because... The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. Right now, he's directed us here. And he's come near, and he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He is the one authority, the truth, the way, the life on what it means to be human in the best way possible. And he tells us in our going here to make disciples, to teach them of how good and faithful and glorious and loving our God is. Father, Son, and Spirit, and to teach them to observe everything that he's commanded us, not as a law, not as a rule, not as a test, not as 10 things to do to get into heaven, but just because it is good. And then he makes this promise, I am with you always to the end of the age. Oftentimes, the the question is asked, if your church disappeared tomorrow, would the city that your church is in care? And I think a lot of churches would like to answer yes and do answer yes, And we're referring to the building and the programs and the things that happen in the destination. But I think if we're honest, the answer might not be yes. Like, we would miss this, right? But would the city really? I don't know. However, what if we shifted that question and instead ask if the people of Restoration Church, not Restoration Church, the people that are Restoration Church were gone tomorrow, would the city care? Well, I think if we embrace these six things and we have rested healthy families that have embraced Sabbath and so workers show up with energy in a time when it's hard to get anybody to work, that would make a difference. If your neighbors see parents playing with their children, that would make a difference. If the people in our community begin to see a generous people, that would make a difference. If we're having friends, family, foes, crazy people, loving people, angry people, happy people into our homes for meals, I think that will make a difference if we're confessing, and so we're known not as people that have it all together, but people that know the one that does, and so we're repentant, humble people, I think that'll make a difference. And slowly but surely, we can do our tiny little part to shift how the world and our culture and our city views the church and therefore Jesus. Now, we're just putting up sails. He'll provide the wind, and he'll move us where he wants us to go, but I'm excited about where he's directing us. Uh, Last thing. This isn't for everyone, I mentioned that, so I'm going to give you the same kind of conclusion. And uh, Two things I asked last week, I'm going to add one. Number one, uh, during this time, do you need to or do you want to take Jesus more seriously? Again, continue to talk and pray about that this week by yourself, with someone, with your family, significant other, whoever it is. Number two, ask, is the Holy Spirit prompting you to join us in the adventure? Uh, discipleship is not a destination, it's a direction. It's like a, a roller coaster. I can't remember if I shared this in this uh, gathering or not, but the point of a roller coaster is not to get to the end, right? It's not a destination. It's over at that point. The point of discipleship is not to get somewhere. 
It's the journey. It's our going. And so is the Spirit calling you to go with us, to journey in this way. And then lastly, next week, we're going to wrap this all up. We'll do a live Q&A, Ron and I, next week. Um, So you can just ask questions on the spot next week. However, I'm assuming you probably have all kinds of questions. There's still a lot of uh, gray and room for wondering how this is going to function and what it's going to be. So because I'm assuming there will be a lot of uh, overlapping questions, we'd love if you send us questions uh, to my email address there ahead of time, then we can kind of curate and do that as helpfully and as efficiently as possible. Let's uh, go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you that you are good. I thank you that you provided your son to be victorious on our behalf, to sacrifice on our behalf, that you've given your spirit to lead us now in the everyday stuff of life. I thank you that you and your way are good. May you lead us in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to continue to respond uh, now in worship, as we do every week, by taking communion. The end of Matthew 28, Jesus presents this vision, and you're going, make disciples, and then he closes with this line, and remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And he's provided communion, not just as a symbol, but this actual union of us to the person of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. And so as we gather today and then as we leave and are going in the everyday stuff of life, we take communion and know that Jesus gave up his body and his blood for us as we take the elements, but that he's alive and well and with us. And so we invite you to come, if you're a follower of Jesus, to take the elements, to be united to him and to one another and worship in that way. Thanks so much again for listening and joining us. Um, Again, my name is Nate Huss and I'm one of the team members here at Restoration Church. And if this is your first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're able to tune in. And uh, don't forget to join us next week as we dive into week three of our teaching series, Trellis. Um, This is so monumental. It's gonna be so fundamental to who we are as a church as we learn what it means to practice the way of Jesus together. And so um, thanks for diving in. If you'd like to learn more, go to restorationaz.org. And until next time, remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we practice the way of Jesus.